0: Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley. Brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio.
1: Hello, I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley. Welcome to Healing the Grieving Heart. Our topic today is Making Sense of Loss, Synchronicity. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to talk a bit about synchronicity. Synchronicity is a word coined by the Swiss psychologist Carl Jung to describe an experience of having two or more things happen simultaneously in a manner that is meaningful to the person experiencing them, where the meaning suggests an underlining pattern. This pattern makes it different than coincidence. Young believed that many experiences perceived as coincidence were due not merely to chance, but instead suggested some higher governing pattern. To give you an example of synchronicity, the other day I was at a meeting in a hotel conference room when I decided to leave early. I thought myself rude as I was sitting on the front row, but I felt felt compelled to leave. As I entered the hotel elevator, I asked the occupants if they were going down, and they gave me a firm yes. Then I got on the elevator, and we proceeded to go up to the fifth floor. Stuck on the fifth floor, the doors of the elevator began opening and closing as though they were in spasm. Finally, after some minutes and button pushing, the elevator started downward. As the doors opened, I came face-to-face with an out-of-state friend from whom I had received an email earlier asking if I might be interested in working with her on an Internet project. What were the chances that we would meet at that unplanned moment? Was it coincidence? Too many events. I like Young would call Young would call it synchronicity or a higher governing pattern. Today our topic is making sense of loss, synchronicity, and I'm pleased to welcome as my guest Dr. David B. Morrell, New York Times bestselling author of 28 books, including his award-winning First Blood, which introduced the world to John Rambo. Dr. Morrell has more than 18 million copies of his book in print, including his most recent book Creepers. He holds a Ph.D. in American literature from Pennsylvania State University and is taught in the English Department at the University of Iowa. David Morrell is no stranger to loss. His father was killed during World War II, shortly after his birth, and in 1986 his 15-year-old son Matthew died of bone cancer. Matthew's death inspired Dr. Morrell to write Fireflies, a father's classic tale of love and loss. David Morrell, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. And uh, we, you and I, talked about what we wanted to call the show, and we were talking about that we wanted to call it "Making Sense of Loss: Synchronicity," and uh, talk a little bit about your book to start with, "Fireflies," about uh, Matthew's uh, illness and his death. It has some very interesting and uh, compelling synchronicities in it. Uh,
0: Well, it certainly changed my life a lot. Uh, Just just for a little background, uh, my son Matthew uh, was uh, 15 when he came home one afternoon from school with a terrible pain in the, on his right side. And we, uh, it was really, really bad. He was bent over. And we immediately took him to our family doctor. And at that time, um, there were some severe chest colds and other kinds of things flying around that it caused a lot of young people to be coming in with pains in their chest. And he diagnosed it uh, in that fashion and prescribed antibiotics um, because, uh, as as we discussed it later, he was looking for a horse, not a zebra,
2: Mm. uh, which is a
0: familiar way that uh, physicians talk about unusual diseases. And uh, the disease uh, appeared to get better and uh, the pain, and then it became worse. Uh, around Christmas time, and uh, so we then took him back and the doctor immediately ordered um, chest x-rays and we determined that he had a grapefruit-sized tumor growing out of uh, uh, his ribs uh, and uh, he was diagnosed with a, a rare form of bone cancer. Uh, uh, known as um, Ewing's sarcoma.
1: Yeah, I remember, I think, didn't Teddy Kennedy's son have that and have his leg cut off or something it, a few years ago?
0: Exactly. Actually, it was more than a few years ago. Quite a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, I'm we, dating myself. We, I was going to say we date ourselves. Yes, <laughs> uh, the, the disease tends to hit um, young people as they go through puberty as the... As the you know the DNA begins. I don't know if that's correct, but you know, as as our body begins changing and going into a new phase, and um, it's always been my feeling that it isn't environmentally controlled or or, or anything like that, but that you know some some uh, fault uh, in the body's uh, evolution uh, mechanism uh, wasn't uh, in place properly, and cells begin growing uh, abnormally when. A person reaches a certain age, and uh, usually the disease hits an extremity like an arm or a leg, and then at that point, amputation is the right. is the preferred thing with uh, some um, with chemotherapy. But Matthews was in his ribs, and so they they went through a big. Oh, God, it was just awful all these Yes, things.
1: which you describe in, uh, very interesting the way you describe it in your book because you've used such a, a clever way to look at it and we can talk about it in the past, present, future. Yeah, you've I been know. able to put that all in the book which keeps you engaged as a listener even though it is difficult to hear about his treatments. Well, um, They were quite incredible.
0: Uh, yes, yeah, the, the device I use, as, as anyone in grief, knows you go through a kind of coulda, woulda, shoulda stage where if only we had done that or if only this hadn't happened, then everything would have been fine. And uh, I decided uh, to write Fireflies, uh, uh, and we'll get to the meaning of the title, but I decided to write it uh, from the viewpoint of using a kind of a Rod Serling device, if you like, a kind of Twilight Zone device. What if... I, on my deathbed years from now, were to have some kind of mysterious thing happen that allowed me to go back in time to a week before when Matt died, and knowing everything that would happen within that week and, and what would eventually cause the death because it was an odd thing that, that did it, not the cancer. Uh, could it have been prevented using that? Coulda, woulda, shoulda. If right. only. Kind of uh, but, yeah.
1: It was so fascinating that you used that because uh, it occurred to me as that is the way we think. And it's. Helped. I mean, you really put down the what's happening for the person.
0: And it, well, it dramatizes it vividly that frustration and desperation and that sense of this can't have happened. It's impossible. Uh, I this I can you know I I went to bed at night often after Matt died, uh, convinced this I mean, this is how the you know, the shock of grief is so powerful. I was convinced that if I if I concentrated enough that when I woke up in the morning none of it would have happened and that we would be back where it was and this would just be a bad dream. And then of course each morning uh quite quite the opposite occurred and um um, just to just to fill in with what I was saying, uh, he went through a conventional chemotherapy, and then he went through investigational chemotherapy. And anybody who's been down that route knows you need a ethics. Um, a group at the hospital to agree because nobody knows whether the, 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 it's not proven technology. You know.
1: Well, tell our audience about that moment when they came out of surgery.
0: Yes. I yeah, mean, that well,
1: was an incredible moment. Well, this
0: is, you know, these things, it's snapshots in your mind forever. Um, we had, uh, the investigational worked actually very, very well for three weeks. It shrank the tumor by 50%. And Boy, were we yeah. elated. And this is, you know, the roller coaster of cancer and the emotions up, down, up, down. And, and so there we were thinking, hey, we're in great shape. And they gave him another round of the chemotherapy and, and not, and, you know, anytime you hear the word resistant, you know, right. you start to say, oh boy. And, and that's when I began hearing it because not only did that investigational chemotherapy not work, um, but in fact, the tumor adjusted almost immediately and grew back within three weeks to its original size, at which point they said, we need to operate. And um, so it was uh, hurriedly scheduled, and we sat waiting, and I'll never forget, because it was a waiting room where the television was on, and, and the uh, Iran-Contra hearings were, were occurring on that day, and they were interviewing uh, Colonel North, and And then suddenly they, much sooner than we were told to expect, we were asked to go to a private waiting area. And I thought, my God, he died. And and not the case. What had happened is when they had opened him, they discovered that the cancer was far more spread than was possible. And we were given, uh, on the spot, we had two choices. Uh, Either say, all right, this is it, we're done, sew him back up and he'll be dead in a month uh and or um, take as much of the cancer as you can sew him back up and then put him into the bone marrow transplant ward where his chances would not be good uh but at least uh it would be better than the other uh the other course and so we were looking at certain death with some quality of life briefly or um, that, 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 that the 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 continued radical surgery and then all this in the bone marrow transplant ward and a slim chance. And we had, uh, you know, seconds to make the choice.
1: Yeah, that was incredible. And when you read it in the book, uh, Fireflies, it's just, you know, you just can't imagine somebody put in that position. You
0: know, well, that's, you know, as real as life gets, I, I suppose. And so uh, we chose uh, to, to that Matt would get further treatment. And so they did the radical surgery in which most of his right side was removed—the um, ribs and what have you—and then he. Uh, this, you know, the big moment there was uh, he realized how how what how slim his chances were, and that even with the bone marrow transplant, it probably was. I didn't say this; the doctor said this to him. And Matt burst out crying and said, "But no one will remember me." Yeah. And that's when I decided, however this worked out, I would you know, write fireflies. But um, just to, you know... You
1: decided at that moment that you would. You knew yes,
0: that. Yes, well, you know, in a writer, being a writer, you write, you know, it just comes out. And and um, Matt, unlike, say, a blood disease where you cannot be a self-donor for a bone marrow, um, Matt's my, my blood was fine. It was a different type of cancer he had, so he could be a self-donor, which made it pretty... Efficient, and you get bone get bone marrow by, in this case, uh, a a needle is injected into a big one is injected into the hip bones, and bone marrow from the center of the bone is sucked out, and it looks just like blood. Uh
3: Uh,
0: And usually, they take two sacks as a um, you know as a precaution. And these are frozen immediately with some preservatives. Going into a little bit more detail on the bone marrow because a lot of people don't know how that works and it sounds so mysterious. But you know, it's a, it's a. a uh, there's some discomfort involved, and, and as I yeah. said, they use a they use a fairly heavy gauge needle to get what looks like blood out of the inside of the hip bone and and freeze it. And uh, so uh, the whole idea behind a, a bone marrow transplant is that you are the patient. God help. Uh, them, it, 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 the patient is given uh, a virtually lethal dose of chemotherapy, far okay. more than the person would normally be able to. See well, them. they
1: always say they can cure cancer; they just kill the patient.
0: Yeah, they, that's the thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and he got, boy, he just got overwhelmed, uh, and it makes you so sick, you know. And then yeah. directly after the chemotherapy, not I won't say directly. There's a, there's a there's a there's a a, a time. Gap there. And then, just as you would give intravenous blood, uh, so the bone marrow was reintroduced into him in, a, in a basically a drip fashion uh, into the vein. And that, that the risk of bone marrow transplant uh, is that the, the amount of, of, of chemotherapy that is then uh, uh, administered wipes out the body's immune system. Right. Uh, and so, basically, you're in isolation and you're sort of waiting. For your blood counts to rise and become healthy again, uh, so that you could combat, um, you know, infection. It'd God help you if you were to get it. And right. a, a cold, for example, would be lethal. But in this case, Matt was doing well. He was doing well, and then one afternoon, we were talking to him. The nurse came in and did a blood pressure check and said his blood pressure is down to like eighty over forty. And which is not good right, and uh, yeah. normal being 120 over 80 and they, they, they basically he crashed and what he what he had developed was staph and strep uh, um, uh, bacteria which multiplied out of control and we have them all over us and basically uh, he, it was six days later, seven days later he died not from cancer but from a heart attack uh, because his uh, veins were totally clogged with the sepsis uh, bacteria that as, they, as he was given, um, as he was given um, antibi- you know, antibiotics and the, the the dead these dead creatures inside, you know, basically his 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 uh, veins became clogged. And right, like and it, it was yeah. it was just awful. And yeah, terrible. You
1: know, it must have been a terrible six or seven days. Well, well it was and and and... then I
0: crashed. You know, then I suddenly developed. Uh, I began having panic attacks like crazy, and.
1: You know, we actually have an email from somebody that asked you a question about that.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's something, you know, I still have.
1: Yeah, have, let me ask you that. Let me read this email and you can respond it right to now. it. Yeah, yeah um, it's a Ben from Ohio, and he says, uh, Dr. Morell, I heard you speak at Compassionate Friends Conference about your panic attacks. It was helpful to me as I was newly bereaved at the time and had experienced some of the same feelings. Are you still having the attacks, and if not, what have you done to stop them? I still have them on occasion.
0: Yeah, um let's let's get into this i i think this is an immensely important thing to talk about you know, do you want to
1: do want to finish about the synchronicity and well, the birds at the yeah, funeral and that kind uh, of thing or do you no, want to do the panic
0: let's leap to that cuz okay. you know here we are um you know basically um when um we are under extreme stress and let us remember that you know i have a i have a friend whose husband died last september and uh, I was talking to her today, and she said, you know, I just don't feel right. You know, I feel like I'm in a fog. And I said to her, well, of course, you're in shock. Right. You know, losing someone you love is, is the equivalent of, you know, you're like in a massive accident. You're in shock. And and the body does things to us when we are in shock. And uh, we tend, for example, uh, to breathe too quickly or we breathe uh, shallowly as as our breathing gets off in one fashion or another, and then the body says, well, gee, I'm not getting enough oxygen here, and and begins to react as if there's some kind of threat involved. I'm obviously simplifying here.
2: Um, And uh, anyhow, a chain reaction will occur in which there is a spontaneous dump of uh, adrenaline-like substances in the body which cause the heart rate to go up, our respiration to go up, and us basically to feel as if we are under attack.
3: Oh, you maybe, yeah, and if, some people feel like they're having a heart attack.
2: Or a stroke, yeah, to decide which one, because your heart can go up to, you know, spontaneously to like 180 beats a minute, and you're breathing like crazy, and then uh, that throws everything else off, and your hands and your feet become numb. You get numbness around your mouth, and then you become dizzy. So let's see, am I having a stroke, am I having a heart attack? And uh, it is it is one of the most terrible experiences, especially since I didn't understand it. And, you know, when Matt was in intensive care and, and then I was crashing, they put me, you know, there I was in the emergency ward. They were trying to figure out what happened to me, and, they couldn't figure out and then finally by process of elimination because the only way you can the the extra terror about all this is you've got to have all the tests you've got to have the EKG from that and you know, it's very expensive and, and then, you know, finally if they can't figure out th- th- anything wrong with you, they say, well, it looks to me like you're having panic yeah. attacks. And
3: here your son is in intensive care oh, and you're yeah. having... And him. I'm
2: down in the emergency
3: ward. Oh my goodness. I mean,
2: just terrible and my wife's going back and forth and she doesn't know what to do and I would be having two or three or four or even five of these a day. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you get to a point where you're nearly blacking out, and then, of course, you don't know what's going on, and as a consequence, the fear of the unknown begins to pile up, and I eventually, when all of this was done, wound up uh, seeing a psychiatrist once a week. Now,
3: what uh, would you suggest to somebody who maybe is newly bereaved and is having these now, just to recognize what they are, and what would you suggest?
2: I mean, but of course, you know, again, it's that issue of, I was reading the other day about some terrible thing that had happened to a family, and then on top of that, the you know, the grandfather died from a heart attack, you know. I mean you if you're having serious chest pains and chest pains go with panic attacks and the dizziness does, but so does it go with something far more serious. So, you know, if you begin to you gotta go to a doctor and then by process of elimination they say, Well, all right, you know, you basically you're probably having these attacks and what they'll usually do is is recommend some kind of therapy uh a psychiatrist, a psychologist. Um, what would
3: you do at the moment, though? Did you have any tricks?
2: Well, yeah. The most, the, the best thing you can do uh, is get yourself a paper bag and put it over Great. your mouth and 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 nose and breathe steadily. You don't want to start. You know, you got to be realized there's a breathing issue here. But if you breathe in and out steadily, the object is that you have an imbalance. In the bloodstream, and what you want to do is get some carbon dioxide into the blood to help offset all these other things that are happening. It's all about you know, the, I mean, it's just it's a kind of a chemistry set we're talking about. And and most people, if they breathe in and out calmly uh, into a, a paper bag, I'm, I mean, you don't want to asphyxiate yourself. If you need to take a breath outside the bag, that's fine. But the object is to get a little bit of carbon dioxide and gradually, you know, this will calm down and, and um, you know, uh, resting and lying down. and, And also, if you suspect that's what's happening, there are any number of really good books on the market about panic attacks and in their lesser form what are called anxiety attacks. Um, and uh, with anxiety, you know, you just kind of feel this odd, uh, you know, relentless nervous jitteriness. Right. Um, but Whereas the panic attack, that's now you're dizzy, you think you're going to pass out, you've got chest pain. You know, it, it's helpful if you get yourself a, a, a book about anxiety, disease, or panic attacks, and, uh, I used to read them if when I was having, I'd pick mm-hmm. up one of these books when I was having it and I'd compare what was happening to me with what I was reading and that helped a lot. It was sort of a reality check, assuming right. of course that I'd already been to a physician and I knew I didn't have real heart disease. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, I eventually, um, with some counseling and you know, um, a bio of uh, feedback. There are all kinds of you know fancy words for ways that one can be taught to sort of come to terms with what is basically a, something's broken in 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 the, in the in our brains in terms of hormones that it's releasing, and the brain sometimes dumps this stuff when there seems no logical reason to do it, uh, and. So uh, the the answer is yes, on occasion I still have them, very seldom, uh, perhaps one a year. Um, and uh, basically I, you know, as soon as I feel this, it, usually it comes because there's too much going on in my life, there's too many details, you know, too many editors and what have you uh, uh, wanting this and that from me, and I feel overwhelmed. You know, and I tell my wife this, I feel overwhelmed and she immediately knows that, you know, I'm heading in this direction and she says, you know, I think it's time for you to take the day off or, Mm -hmm. you know, lie down or, you know, just sort of decompress and I find that to be very helpful just to be aware that I can't control the universe. And, right. But if you think you can, you're going to get a panic attack, you know? <laughs> Right. So that, that's, the, that's the simple answer.
3: Okay, Ben, thanks a lot for your email, and uh, I think that's been very helpful. And, uh, David, we were talking at break about um, the fact that um, after your son Matthew died, um, you have a fabulous story about synchronicity and um, doves. Is it doves?
2: Yes, it's, yeah. it, it's a dove, and as you noted in your introduction, uh, coming from the great psychologist Jung, this this term which suggests when you have a, 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 um, a some synchronous events that occur, a, a, a simultaneous thing, which appear to be more than coincidence. Where
3: too many of them to be coincidence. Many.
2: And what happened to me, to my wife, to our family with uh, with. Um, with Matt, is uh, he was cremated, uh, and um, part of that was I that, that cancer, you know, I just wanted, I just couldn't stand the thought of it sort of surviving, and um, we took Matt's urn to a mausoleum, there was a, I, I'm Roman Catholic, and so we had a priest with us, and We had had the funeral, and then we went to the mausoleum, and there was a large group of us. I believe there may have have been 12 of us, which, in a certain way, is an odd number given where I'm going with this. And um, I was carrying the urn and went into the the mausoleum first with the the priest, and then the people were following. And the priest turned ashen and, 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 and stopped in his tracks and said, I've heard of this happening. I just never thought it would happen to me, and I thought, "What on earth is he talking about?" Until I looked ahead and saw what he was what he was viewing. Um, There was a mourning dove inside the mausoleum in what amounted to a little chapel area, and it was flying around in circles. Uh, Now um, we can pause here to say, (coughs) "Excuse me." There's no mystery about how he dove. A bird, let us say, would get into a mausoleum and somebody left the door open or, you know, mm-hmm. animals get into buildings sometimes. Uh, but it's the buildup of details that becomes interesting. Uh, he walked over and sat the the urn on a kind of a pedestal and then began to bless the urn in preparation for putting it into a niche. And, you know, the bird, uh, we got to think about how a bird would behave in, the, in this, in this uh, circumstance. I mean, it's in there, it's trapped. It should have acted in a panicked fashion, right. but instead it flew over and landed on a windowsill close to us and watched us very calmly. Uh, and I had this eerie identification with it, and uh, a, a kind of a little intuition inside me, I remember thinking this very vividly, that when the priest is done with the final prayers, the bird will fly to us and land in the middle of the circle. Mm-hmm. And that is precisely what happened, uh, and almost as if I had willed it to happen. Uh, and so there the dove is, and quite calmly, standing in the middle of the circle of 12 people plus the priest, and my brother-in-law, who's uh who you know, uh, let's get a job done kind of guy, started taking his coat off and said, "I'll trap the bird."
3: Right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "I said no, that won't be necessary. The dove will allow me to pick it up." <laughs> and so I walked into the circle. I mean, this is just so weird. I walked into the circle
3: and the dog did you have a a sense of peace and confidence oh, when uh, you did it, that?
2: yes it was overwhelming and, and, and the sense that i knew everything that was going to happen right uh and i i i the, the dove remained perfectly calm and i picked it up and remember you know this animal should have been Panicking. terrified uh and instead it was behaving quite calmly i picked it up and i started outside and By then, the drama of it had overcome me, and I said, I will now set Matthew free, because that was the identification I was
3: making. Right. And you had walked out with the dove on your hand?
2: Exactly. I got outside with the dove in my hand. I
3: mean, that he would even stay.
2: Well, and then it got even more interesting, because I opened my hands, and the bird would not fly away. Uh. It just sat in my hands, and I looked at it, and that, now I'm thinking. Well, when I picked it up, did I injure a wing or something? So I.
3: Hello. Uh-huh. We have uh, gotten a cut off from Doctor Morrell, and he is telling us about an experience with his son. And I'm hoping that we will. I'm get him... back again. Okay. <laughs> so
2: I, you know, I don't know why this. I think there may be something wrong with my phone.
3: But uh, anyway, so the dove's in your hand. Yes,
2: and I said, I hope I didn't hurt you. And if you look at this in a certain perspective, it's a father talking to a son as much as me talking to the dove. And it was at that point looking back at me. It looked back at me, Uh and we made some intense eye contact. And then it turned around and flew directly up into the sky.
3: Uh And
2: um, it was one of the most, moving and overwhelming and uh, significant events that I've ever been a part of and I I told the story in, in Fireflies and I told it to everybody you know I came in contact with and then a strange thing began to happen uh, I, I sent you know in the book business Lord help you, you you need quotes from other authors to sort of you know get the right. some word of mouth and I sent a copy of the manuscript of Fireflies to a uh, a priest uh, 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 who uh, was who a novelist, and um, he um, he sent me a letter back saying that he thought the, the, that the book would do a lot of good because uh, in his experience as a pers- as a priest counseling people in grief over like thirty years. Um, Andrew uh, Greeley, I believe his, his name was, uh, is, and uh, that that he himself, counseling people, had heard stories like that more than 50% of the time, right? and that people thought they were going nuts. you know. They <laughs> talked about this, and people looked at them like they're there, you know, calm down and all that, but he said this was a thing, you know, that you heard it a lot, and then You know, I'd be on the road promoting this book or that book, and people would come up to me, familiar with fireflies, and they would say, you know what happened with the dove? That happened to me with this, uh, you know, this butterfly that followed me around, a very, very odd story about a a butterfly that had a smile on its back and that followed a family for an entire summer. And then, of course, in the fall it was gone, and in the spring the butterfly is back, and they go out and they look at it, and the butterfly dies in midair in front of them,
3: oh, my. lands
2: at their feet next to an identical butterfly that flies up and flies away. Oh. Uh, you know, the, and, and, and usually the person experiencing this, I, I heard hundreds of these stories. And yes,
3: all, it sounds all, like maybe somebody should collect them, because well, they're, actually, they're wonderful, has, wonderful it stories. It has been
2: done. Uh there's a, um, there's a, 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 a some people who studied with Elizabeth Kubler Ross. Um, and uh they have, who was a you know, a death and dying researcher and they have done I wish I, I'm not where I can grab the book to tell you the authors, but the book is called Hello from Heaven.
3: Oh yes, the uh, Guggenheims.
2: That's it, the, the Guggenheim. Guggenheims. And, yeah. you know, I, I fear that it's a slightly overwrought title, um, you know, and sounds like it's a, a New Age book or, you know, what have you. And it's actually, uh, their mission was to collect as many of these stories as they could, Always making sure that they checked the background of the person so that, you know, they weren't dealing with people who were psychotic or, you know, alcoholics, you know, people who were seeing things. I've been talking about synchronicity and that unusual experience I had with the dove and how when I went around the country, you know, readers would come to me and say, hey, something like that happened to me. And I began to realize that Father Greeley was absolutely right that this was um, uh, a phenomenon of, of unusual proportion, uh, and how do we, how do we explain it? You know, I mean, the the, the the coincidences in some of these events are are extraordinary, and um, I you know, do is it possible that we would have, you know, the mental strength to make these things happen? I I don't know. I I uh, I prefer to believe that there's a a spirit that can, I'm not talking necessarily about God in any conventional sense that we talk about, but that a life force of, of sort of like Van Gogh when you read a, watch a, look at a Van Gogh painting. I, it's sort of hard to talk about, but it's a, it's a, it's a common experience for many people, very powerful, and the, and the message almost always is from the, the dead child or a dead relative, what have you, I'm okay.
3: Right. Yeah. Uh,
2: it's always affirming and positive and almost always occurs in that form, I'm okay. And uh, so, um, you know, if uh, certainly in my, the shock of my grief, um, the, uh, that experience with the dove I, I gave me, uh, you know, some support, uh, mm-hmm. certainly when I absolutely needed it.
3: Absolutely. Well, that's great, and I'm sure our listeners will love that story, and I'm, and I'm sure many of them have had their uh, similar stories. <clears throat> um, as I told you, we have a couple of emails mm-hmm. I wanted to read to you, and sure. one of them is from Wendy from Salt Lake City, Utah, and she says, um, I work in an independent bookstore, and I'm always interested in what motivates authors and how their their work changes over time. I wondered if you think the death of your son has influenced your writing or taken you in a different direction.
2: There's, there's no question that it did. I, I, uh, my father died in the Second World War, and I was raised essentially fatherless, even though I had a, had a stepfather who really didn't care for much for me. And, and uh, certainly the secret of my life has been my searching out male authority figures who uh, I wanted to give me encouragement and and it is because of three of them um, who generously helped me that I you know, was able to have the success I did. Uh, but if you look at my, my novels up to um, when uh, Matt died in the mid-'80s, uh, you find, if you look real closely, you, see, you find a pattern of a young man searching for a father figure of some sort. I mean, you have to look close, but it's there. Uh-huh. And when uh, Matt died... Uh, I had an abrupt disconnect. It's like I became, understandably, a different person. I had different, a whole different life experience, and I was fascinated to see, without really knowing it, I sort of saw it later, that looking at my later books, uh, that the pattern turned around, and it was like the father looking for a son figure. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, again, you know, you have to look closely, but certainly in my mind, I can the pattern very clearly and that I was following, you know, basically the dominant emotion I was feeling.
3: So you, I'm looking at your books right now, The, the Covenant of the Flame, was that,
2: that, no, that was before? That wouldn't sort of fit, but if we look at, say, the Brotherhood of the Rose, which is 1984, yeah, mass, right. uh, it's about two young men raised in a military orphanage, and I was in an orphanage when I was very young,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, my mother had to put me in one for a time and they are befriended by an elderly man who comes to the orphanage, and basically he, he works for the CIA, but they do not know that. <clears throat> and basically he, from an early age, makes them think of him as, his, as the father, and tra- basically trains them to be his personal operatives. And the point of the story uh, is that he betrays them, and that uh, to save himself and <clears throat> the anger that they feel is, you know, almost global, because once again they've been betrayed, you know, the father figure isn't there, and they feel the loss again, and, you know, I thought about that later, and I said, oh boy, you know, (laughs) you could all those emotions from when I was a kid rising up, and then subsequent to Matt's death, I did, for example, a book called Desperate Measures, which is about... Um, an obituary writer, if you like, a, a, a person whose son has died from Ewing sarcoma. Oh. He, he used to be a hot shot um, uh, feature article he, uh, writer He had a nervous breakdown now he 's an obituary writer. In fact, I always thought this was sort of bitterly amusing he 's a suicidal obituary <laughs> writer, and in the course of of, of, of what happens to him, um, it becomes very Hitchcockian, because, you know, obituaries are written beforehand for famous people. Mm, uh, yes. And uh, and he writes an obituary about a man who's not yet dead and digs uh, up information that causes the death of the man he's writing the obituary about, which I love,
3: because
2: mm-hmm. um, he's killed. And in the course of the story, <clears throat> our hero uses grief, you know, it's just as a survival mechanism because people are shooting at him and he wants to die. Right. I mean, he feels just <laughs> terrible. And, but at one point, he, you know, they're shooting at him. He says, Well, let him shoot you. And he says, You know what? I want it to be my idea.
3: <laughs> and that's, that's what cool. saves
2: him. And, and I used everything about compassionate friends and, you know, everything I knew about grief in order to have this story show how, in the midst of his trying to learn to stay alive, that uh, you know, he he learns to try to come to terms with the the loss of his son. Right.
3: How did you connect up with Compassionate Friends? Because I got uh, a contact with you through them.
2: Yes. Uh, years ago, when Matt died, uh, I was told about an organization about there it. It was a chapter in uh, Iowa City where I then lived, and I was you know I thought, well, gee, you know, I just feel so bad. How can anybody help me? But when I went there and I got to meet, you know, this, this reinforcing group, and I heard about all the terrible things that other people, their children, had gone through, you know, I began saying, gee, these people are in bad shape. And, <laughs> and, you know, and they're looking at me saying, that guy's in bad shape. And so, you know, we all got together to sort of help one another. It's It's one of the greatest organizations I know of. It really helped my wife and I.
3: Oh, that's great. You know, do you, uh, we're going to have to close the show in a minute. Do you have any last? I'm going to read you a real quick email because I think it's sweet. It's from Larry from Michigan, and it said, I saw David Morrell was going to be on your show. I have enjoyed many of his books, starting with First Blood in the 70s. I followed his career and was really taken back when his son died six months after my daughter Jane. Mm-hmm. I want to say that I am glad that you have kept on writing and keep it up because I will keep on reading. Also, Dr. Horsley, thanks for the show and, and uh, the help I get from Compassionate friends.
2: Well, you know, um, some of what I, I try to put...